0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Now, here in Luke chapter 8, verse 22 and following, we're dealing with passages and stories that confront us with the authority of Christ, the power of Jesus his unlimited ability through storms, over the demonic realm, uh, over sickness, and eventually uh, even over death itself. And the key ingredient, obviously, in each one of these passages and elements is Jesus, his presence, his authority, and his power. And what we'll see from moment to moment is that tapping into or accessing the power of Christ, uh, comes by uh, way of faith itself. And so here we have a section now of just discovering the personal ministry, the personal work of Christ. And I think in one sense we'll be encouraged by looking at the way in which the Lord wants to minister personally inside of our own lives. In verse 22, it says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased, and there was a calm. Now it's important, I think, to notice the word of Jesus to his disciples initially. He says, let us go across to the other side of the lake. We've just been studying in Luke chapter eight so far about the parable of the sower and various parables that relate to the word of God, the word of the Lord. And here we have the word of Jesus in announcing, let us go across to the other side of the The lake. They uh, weren't being invited to drown in the lake. They were being invited to make it across to the other side of the lake. Now, just to get the image in your mind, uh, this boat was likely filled to the brim to absolute capacity with 13 of them uh, inside of the boat. This wasn't a double-decker kind of scenario with its own private little sleeping compartment. No, they are piled into a relatively small fishing boat, more than likely, and 13 of them would have likely filled the boat to uh, the brim. Now, many of Jesus' disciples had come from the fishing industry and were very comfortable on the Sea of Galilee, and they had great ability. Jesus entrusts the journey into their hands and notice in verse 23, it says, As they sailed, he fell asleep. Now, I think it's nice to think about this. I've heard many say that no one slept like Jesus. Uh, his Clean conscience enabled him to sleep so well. And I'm sure there's great truth in that. Jesus certainly had a clean conscience because of an absolute sinlessness in his life. But if a clean conscience were the requirement for great sleep, many people would never sleep at all. Jesus, I think, fell asleep here in this moment because he's exhausted he's been working so hard at teaching and ministering and handling the multitudes and the crowds and the disciples and the accusers and here on this boat in a quiet moment of relative solitude with only 12 disciples jesus begins to sleep i've always been fascinated personally by the work ethic of jesus christ just the sacrifice the determination the tirelessness of the work of Jesus, just admirable in so many ways. And there he is on the boat, asleep, asleep to the point that he remains asleep in the middle of an apparently large storm. It was a windstorm. It reads in verse 23, and the water begins to fill up the boat. The disciples knew that they were in danger, and they, verse 24, woke Jesus saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. So they believe that they are at the point of death and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. Now it's possible that this storm was more than just a natural storm, but actually of demonic origin. Uh, At other times, Jesus would rebuke demons and the same language or type of language is used when he rebuked the wind to describe his rebuke of the demonic realm. Uh, We know that there was power miraculously beyond simply just the calming of the wind, but the calm itself that came upon the waters appears to have been not just a residual calm, but an immediate miraculous calm that was brought upon the lake. And immediately afterwards, it says in verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? What a question for Jesus to ask his disciples. Where is the presence of your reliance and your trust upon me? Where is your leaning upon me? Uh, Where is your ability to... Go beyond what you can see with your own eyes, what you can conceive of and dream of within your own intellect, and where is your ability to go beyond that into the realm of faith itself. Now, on the one hand, as has been pointed out so many times, there was to be, I think, a faith in the word of Jesus. He had said, let us cross over to the other side. And so there should have been, I think, from the disciples, a belief in the word of the Lord. Hey, he invited us to cross over. And when Jesus says it, it will come to pass. But I think it's good also to think about this, not just from their personal little trip across the Sea of Galilee, but to imagine it in another way. Uh, For them to be dreaming that this storm would lead to their demise and death, out there on the open waters of the Sea of Galilee, is basically biblically tantamount to them saying, there is a God who created the heavens and the earth, and when he created mankind, and mankind chose rebellion and to fall into sin, this God then initiated a plan immediately of redemption, that he would send his only begotten son, the God so loved the world, That he sent his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But that in the middle of this rescue mission of the son of God, God, the son, that this storm would potentially take him and them out of the picture, thereby ruining the redemptive plan of God to allow his son to die on a cross for the sin of the entire world. In other words, What I'm trying to say is that there should have been faith that absolutely, positively, Jesus could not die at this point. His three years of preaching would not go down the drain. His kingdom would come, and the boat was not going to go down. In other words, because Jesus was in the boat, the boat would not sink. Uh, He had yet to go to the cross. His success was guaranteed. He had to complete his mission. But I just love the question, where is your faith? And I think the Lord has so often been faithful to ask this question of me. Where then is my faith? And and uh, am I a person who believes in the Lord, trusts the Lord, and will be willing to leave the realm of what my own mind can conceive of and enter into realms of faith and trust of the Lord that go beyond uh, my own might, mind and my own intellect. I think in our modern era, we understand that Jesus said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But we see so many limiting factors, whether it's, you know, the more, more base things like resources and finances and things like that, or the more supernatural things, the obvious push of the demonic realm against the church ideologies that compete with the message of the gospel, a hostility, persecution coming from the world towards the body of Christ. All of these elements, I think, can be looked at. And we might say, the ship is going down instead of saying, no, Jesus is in this boat. He is in the church. And to believe the Lord and to trust the Lord that he will continue to seek and save that which is lost. He will continue to pour out his Holy Spirit. He will continue to strongly work here upon earth. Rather than having excuses that are are the result of what we see in our minds, that we would have hearts of faith who see that if Jesus is with us, who can be against us? Now, the disciples were overwhelmed at all of this. They said, who is this? And he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. They're marveling at this point. And this question is going to be repeated and is the theme of the next chunk of the book, of Luke. Herod is going to ask, who is this? Jesus is going to ask them, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And ultimately the father on the Mount of Transfiguration is going to say, this is my son, my chosen one. And so they begin to ask, who then is this? Then they sailed verse 26 to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And so they go to this Gentile region on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and immediately this demonically possessed man comes out to meet them. This man hadn't even worn clothes for some time. He hadn't lived in a home like people normally would, but he's living amongst the tombs. When he saw Jesus, verse 28, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, likely demonically inspired, and he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Now, the question had just been asked by the disciples, who then is this? Here, the demons crying out from this demonically possessed man cry out and say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? James says in James 2 verse 19 that even the demons believe and shudder. They had an understanding of who Jesus is, of who Jesus was. Now here, Jesus immediately upon meeting this man begins the process of casting the demons from this man's body. And we notice, of course, the grave situation that this man is in. He is not able to be kept under guard. He's unable to be bound with chains or shackles. He breaks them with demonic power and is driven by these demons into the desert, ultimately to live amongst the tombs. What you're seeing here is the description of the devil himself destroying a man's life. Jesus then asked him, verse 30, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for, as Luke writes, many demons... Had entered him now, unfortunately, many people have read what Jesus had said at that moment and have come up with some kind of method for how to cast out a demon, and so what people will do is they will ask the name of the demon. Uh, unfortunately though that's a not a very biblically sound uh, methodology to come up with. Uh, You don't see them in the book of Acts, casting out demons in this kind of way. You don't see even Jesus doing it this way in other instances. And you don't see this kind of idea taught in any of the epistles. I don't think that Jesus at all is asking the demons, what is your name? It says Jesus then asked him, what is your name? I don't think that Jesus was talking to the demonic side of this man. I think what Jesus was doing was looking at a man and and looking past the demonic realm that had so dominated him, so crushed his identity, had so consumed him so that he would say in response, not, you know, his name given to him by his mother when he was a baby, but his name that had consumed him. Because of the demonic realm. And I look around in this world and I see so many people who identify themselves by a sin. Or identify themselves by a career. Or identify themselves by a practice of their lives. And something has so consumed them that their identity is now gone. I think Jesus looks in this man's eyes and is asking him, What was it that your parents used to call you when you were a little boy? What was it when you were still sweet and innocent before whatever it was that occurred in your life that invited this kind of chaos into your life? What were you called? What was your name? Now, unfortunately, the demonic realm, had so overwhelmed this man that the answer didn't come from him, but from them. The answer was legion for many demons had entered him. Now, a Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers strong. Uh, likely there were less demons inside of this man than that although there will be two thousand swine that will be influenced by this group of demons but i just love the pattern of the lord he's beginning to draw out the humanness from this man's life and they begged him verse 31 not to command them to depart into the abyss now at this point We have to give ourselves a little bit of pause. The demons have already asked Jesus previously in the text not to torment them. And here they beg him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, in the book of Revelation, the abyss is spoken of more than in any other place. Specifically in Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3, it's the place following the second coming of Christ, which is very visible, Bodily and public. Following the return of Jesus, once he commences his 1,000 year reign here on earth, ruling the nations with a rod of iron, it says that during that time, Satan is bound for a period of 1,000 years inside of the abyss. And so it appears that the demons here understand their future judgment, their future destiny they say, don't torment us and don't throw us into the abyss. Now in verse 32, it says a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now, This is a wild scene, don't you think? Here you have Jesus dealing with this demonically possessed man. We know from the other gospels, from Matthew, that there were actually two men, one of them more and most prominently uh, possessed by demons. That's why Mark and Luke focus their attention upon him primarily, but he's standing there before this man and the demons beg, don't torment us. Don't throw us into the abyss. And they see the swine and say, please let us enter into uh, these pigs, which is just a fascinating thought that these, what I believe are disembodied spirits as a result of an angelic rebellion led by Satan himself, that these disembodied spirits want to enter into a body. And they're asking Jesus for permission to enter into these swine. Now, the Wild thing to us is that Jesus then gives them permission. It says it there in verse 32. So he gave them permission. They promptly enter into the herd of pigs, rush down the bank into the lake, and drown. Now, this, I think, for many of us creates a bit of a dilemma. I don't know that it needs to, for one, and this is possible. Some argue that this herd of swine was actually an illegal industry uh, that was actually ultimately selling these pigs in the nation of Israel. And so uh, that would, of course, lead people that were under the covenant of the Old Testament to eat pig or to eat swine, which had been forbidden to them. They couldn't eat pork. So perhaps Jesus is sort of with two killing two birds with one stone, delivering the man, but also judging some kind of forbidden trafficking of pigs. I don't know that that's uh, necessarily what is happening. I I assume that we'll find out someday. But what we do understand is that the value system of God is that this man is of more value than what the other gospels tell us was about 2,000 pigs, So we know that God loves man over livestock. But I think the thing to me that I love to take from this is that Jesus needs no justification. In other words, because he did it, there is justice in it. You know, he went to the cross, he died for the sin of the world. So what he says has justice and love bound up within it. And I think the mature mind will wrestle with the revealed word of christ but will also submit to its clear teaching even if it violates their personal mindset because if jesus says it there is justice within it now when the herdsmen saw what had happened verse 34 they fled and told it in the city and in the country then people went out to see what had happened and they came to jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon possessed man had been healed. Now, what we're seeing here, of course, is the power of Jesus, not simply to win a spiritual battle, and that should not be lost on us. I think sometimes we focus too quickly upon the swine. Instead of celebrating that Jesus. Here was disarming the authorities uh, there and disarming this demonic realm and triumphing over them in this man's life. Jesus was winning the spiritual battle by obliterating these demons. Just a beautiful thing. But here you see the full restoration of what Jesus did in this man's life. The people come out and they see Jesus and they find the man. And it's beautiful because there are three specific things that occurred uh, in his life. Number one, he is sitting at the feet of Jesus. This man simply takes the posture of a disciple. And one of the greatest things that you can do when you first come to the Lord is simply sit at the feet of Christ, hear his word, discover his teaching, learn from the Lord, allow his word to saturate your mind and to Renew your mind. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This man is sitting at the feet of Jesus, the posture of a disciple. But might we also say it like this, the posture of self-control, able to sit. This man who had previously been uncontrollable, now in control he is secondly clothed clothed this was really a first step of practical discipleship in his life Uh, he was unclothable before he had not worn clothes for a long time luke had recorded for us and here the disciples i'm sure seeing this man who's now been delivered they gather together some garments and put some clothes on his back and he's now clothed and for some people the first step of discipleship is so basic. Hey, listen, you used to be this. You can't do that anymore. It's time for you to be free of that. And for for this man, his first step was so obvious. It was just time for him to put some clothes on. But the phrase that I love so much, the third thing, he was clothed and in his right mind, in his right mind. He had been in his wrong mind for so long. For so long, he had thought thoughts that were so anti-God's word, so unbiblical, so self-oriented, and basically at their very core, demonic in nature. But here, Jesus stands in this man's life, and this man is put in his right mind. I want to see the Lord more and more as I walk with him, put me in my right mind. There are so many things that need to be washed from my mind, that I might see him clearly, that I might know the truth, that I might uh, have the truth of God's word washing my mind and my heart. And so here's this man sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. And of course, it behooves us to think of the power of Jesus. Paul, in his Romans chapter 7 struggle of wanting to do right, but doing wrong and wanting to to, uh, refuse to do wrong, but, and actually ending up doing those things said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is indeed the right question to ask. We should not ask what can deliver me or how can I deliver myself? What philosophy can deliver me? No, we should say who will deliver me from this body of death. Paul said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's Jesus who gives this brand of deliverance in a person's life where we can be so delivered that we're sitting at the feet of Christ clothed and in our right minds. I would venture to say that there are various things in your life that you might feel are unchainable that you cannot stop yourself from doing. You might appear uh, relatively tame, but you know within your heart that there are areas that are so unshackled, so unchained, so unruly. But the Lord looks in your life, and if you walk with the Lord and continue to bring yourself to Him daily, to surrender your body to Him as a living sacrifice, when you go walk with the Lord and pray to the Lord and cry out to the Lord, you will more and more be brought into your right mind. Just this morning, I took a small group of men up into some of the local trails of a local hillside or mountainside forest kind of area in our community. And we walked and we just gave the Lord just a small portion of the day, 15, 20, 25 minutes to pray and a few minutes to discuss what we sensed the Lord was speaking to our hearts. And the fascinating thing to me was that these men, in such a short period of time, had so many things that they sensed that God was speaking to them in that moment. In just 20 minutes of seeking the Lord in that kind of environment. And the Lord himself is so able to bring us into a place of right-mindedness within uh, our lives. Now, it says in verse 37, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Garrisons asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, the people there of the garrisons, they can't handle Jesus reorganizing their lives, reshuffling the furniture. And so they say, can you just leave? And then the interesting thing that happens is that the man himself begs Jesus to go with him and Jesus refuses, which is fascinating because the demons begged that he would not torment them or throw them in the abyss and that he might allow them to go into the, the demons and Jesus gives them permission. These people beg that Jesus would leave, and Jesus says, okay. But here a disciple, a brand new convert, begs to go with Jesus, and he says no. Instead, go home and declare how much God has done for you. I think that this was Jesus' giving a preemptive strike for the gospel in that region. They would be well prepared to hear the full gospel story once the church began to spread into their region after the Holy Spirit was poured out in the early days of the book of Acts after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. But what a beautiful thing. Go and declare how much God has done for you. There are a lot of ways to share our faith. There are a lot of ways for us to communicate the gospel. One way is for us to simply declare how much God has done for us. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.